Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sabrina Strickland from Hospital for Special Surgeries to be discussing a variety of different knee injuries and all the various factors that go into treating a knee injury. So we're covering ACL injuries, patellofemoral issues, osteoarthritis, and other degenerative changes, and so much more in this episode. We even discuss skiing injuries and some crazy skiing knee injuries that Dr. Strickland has treated in the past. Before we get to this episode, though, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Strickland, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. For people who aren't familiar with you and your work and publications, would you mind filling us in a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I practice in New York City. I also um, go to an office in our Stanford, Connecticut. Essentially, we have a satellite there twice a month. Um, I've been doing this for 20 years, and it takes a little while to get where I where I am now, meaning I went to college, and then I spent four years in med school. I spent five years doing an orthopedic surgery residency. Then I spent a year doing a fellowship specifically in sports medicine and shoulder. And what that that means is that I only operate on the knee and shoulder. My subspecialty, because when you've been doing this for 20 years, especially at a hospital like mine and our hospital, all we do is orthopedic surgery. It can, you can become fairly narrowly focused. And so my focus is sort of more complex knee injuries. I do uh, a lot of ACL reconstructions, um, but I also do a lot of cartilage transplant, a lot of patellofemoral instability um, surgery. And, you know, that's, if you meet 10 people on the street, you know, you might find one of them who had knee surgery, but then if you meet 10 people who've had knee surgery, not even one has had a cartilage transplant and nor have they had a patellar stabilization surgery. So a little bit more unusual. Right, right, definitely. And I'm glad you brought up the point of knee injuries because that's something that I think a lot of people can relate to. You know, you look at the stats and there's what, 400, 500,000 ACL tears annually. I think everyone knows an athlete who had an ACL tear. I think a lot of people are currently living with arthritis of the knee. And as you mentioned, there are some different patellar tracking and patellar issues out there too that might go unnoticed or unrecognized by a lot of people. Starting out with kind of the ACL because that seems to be the big one. And like I said, I feel like a lot of people see that on TV. They hear about it all the time. Can you kind of fill us in a little bit about you know, what happens when someone tears their ACL, how it happens, and what their options are after it's torn? So most people who tear their ACL, they, they know something significant happened when it, when it happened. Meaning if you're skiing and you tear your ACL, you're usually not skiing to the bottom of the mountain. Or if you're playing <laughs> soccer or basketball, you're not going back in the game. Um, although I see exceptions to that. And they come in, they're like, how could it be that I tore my ACL? I went back for 10 more minutes of the game. So sometimes... Sometimes it happens, but essentially it, it's an injury where um, the shin bone is coming too far forward. Typically the knee is in a little bit of a knock knee type position and it's too much force for the ACL and the ACL rips. And most people do feel a pop or a rip in their knee and their knee immediately swells up. It's a really important ligament for sports, like especially a sport like tennis or basketball or even skiing because it stabilizes the knee when you're doing motions that go side to side. And so um, a lot of people elect to have ACL surgery. It's not life-saving surgery. I mean, you can walk with, if you don't have an ACL, but usually you can't get back to sports that involve 
cutting or side to side motion without your ACL. And the surgery is not a huge deal surgery. It takes about an hour, but the recovery is a big deal recovery that most people are in physical therapy for at least four months. And we really try to get athletes to wait nine months at least till they get back to sports, just because the risk of re-injury is so high. Right, right. Just like you it's, could do it in the first place, you certainly do it again. Right. It takes easily nine to 12 months. And I think there was a study, I can't remember who wrote it right off, that every month after the nine-month mark, your risk of re-injury goes down like five or 10% or something significant that way. So it's one of those things that the patient's game really pays off with it. Now, there's a lot of different surgical options for people who tear their ACL, right? There's hamstring grafts and bone patellar bone grafts. And I've even seen people having bone marrow centrifuge in with their uh, surgery, their uh, new graft. Has there been any uh, option that you see as like the gold standard or any benefits to one over the other? So over the last over my practice, I went from doing almost all patellar tendons to doing almost all hamstrings. And so I think the way we do hamstrings is much better than how we did it 20 years ago. We usually just take one and quadruple it. So we get a better graft. It's um, all inside drilling. It's just less invasive. And I think losing a little bit of hamstring strength is not nearly as morbid or as painful or um, is losing a piece of your patella <laughs> and a little piece of your shin bone. Um, the newest thing, like the What's, what's new and different is as of this year, we have the bear, like the animal, the bear, but it's a bridge enhanced ACL reconstruction. And you're basically using a patient's own, um, own blood and you're, you're basically soaking a bovine. So from a cow collagen implant. So it looks like almost like a piece of styrofoam that you soak in, in blood and you put it where the, the ACL tear is and at least their data and what they had to prove to get through the FDA looks great. Um, is it great? I don't know. I've been doing it since um, about the beginning of March. I just saw a patient today who's three months out and so far so good. Her knee feels rock, rock solid. But as we mentioned, with any kind of ACL reconstruction, you don't know if it's good till it's a year later, or two years later, and you're really back to sports. And so um, the jury's still out on what the gold standard is. I would say the gold standard today for a young athlete is a hamstring in my hands. Awesome. Yeah. And I think the hamstring graft usually allows for faster recovery times too, from what I had seen. I think it hurts less. I think the small, the scar is smaller. Um, as far as getting back to sports though, I mean, getting back to running, I think it's a little bit quicker, um, but getting back to soccer, I think it's the same. And gotcha. The yeah. yeah. And I've also seen some surgeons doing like an ALL as, along with the ACL reconstruction. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> We just, we just don't know. So for the most part, I tend to use ALL for revision situations where somebody's already gone through one. I mean, it's, um, it's just taking a little strip of the IT band and, and basically attacking it down to the femur. It's actually what they used to do before they figured out that we could do ACL reconstruction. And so ALL alone definitely helps stabilize the knee. What we don't know is what happens 10 years down the road if you do an ALL. Because right. it does change the knee mechanics a little bit and you worry about, is this going to increase patients' risk of arthritis? Maybe. Um, we just don't know. So right, I, don't know, right. I don't think we're ready to do that on all, all patients. But You mentioned before the ACL rehab is a long, grueling process. And it's definitely one of those things that if you are unfortunate enough to tear your ACL, you want to seek the best rehab possible because I'm willing to bet not everyone knows what they're doing in the rehab process with ACLs. I've worked with a lot of people before who will clear an athlete to return to run, 
but the athlete has never done any plyometric activity under supervision. So to me, I just got to ask myself, like, why would I clear an athlete to do a single leg force absorption activity like running when they might not even be comfortable doing that on two legs? So when you, if you are unfortunate enough to tear it, seek out the best rehab possible. And I know you at HSS have your own rehab team there. But the vast majority of my patients don't don't live right next to the hospital. So most of <laughs> patients don't rehab here. But, I, you know, I tell patients like the places that I'm familiar with or the therapists I've worked with in the past. But you also get a sense if you look in around at the other people who are rehabbing next to you and they're also rehabbing their ACL or, you know, a sports type injury that gives you a little bit of confidence that you're maybe at the right place. And absolutely. I mean, I have an eight inch step in every one of my exam rooms so that I can look at how patients are are doing just stepping down. And if they're running, but they can't even step down a step, they're not ready to run. And so, um, and then I'm switching physical therapists because, you know, they probably were given the, the wrong information there. I love that you mentioned that you're the first surgeon I've talked with in a long time who said, I actually like look at things like the step and the functional and that sort of stuff. A lot of surgeons I've talked with they just do like, you know, your Lockman's or your drawer testing and make sure it's strong tensile wise and ask a couple questions. And two, three minutes later, patient's gone. Now, I definitely, I, especially at the point where we're starting to talk about ramping up activity, I start looking at their strength. And I think that and patients can see it. <laughs> they, they either can do it or they can do it well or they can't. And then Right, right. And the eight inch step is, it's very functional, right? It's hard to eccentrically control from that uh, height. And I think it shocks a lot of people at first, because they're like, well, you know, I was doing, you know, open chain isokinetic dynamometer, and it said my strength was good. But open chain is a lot different than closed chain functional activity, for sure. Absolutely. So you also mentioned, as we were talking about the ALL, that we don't really know what the long-term outcomes and implications that can be. And you mentioned, hey, it might set someone up for early onset arthritis. Knee arthritis is another big problem we're seeing in the country lately. I'm seeing people even in their 40s having knee replacements done, which completely shocks me because I had always thought, hey, you know, it's something that, you know, 60 year olds or 70 year olds or older adults are going to get, not someone in their 40s. So do you have any thoughts as to why we're seeing so many knee replacements and just overall what goes into the whole formation and whole arthritis thing for people who aren't familiar? So arthritis can be used, that term can be used to talk about like a little bit of cartilage softening where the cartilage just isn't perfect. And you could say, oh, that's really early arthritis, or it can be bone on bone arthritis where you can barely move your knee. And so it's a huge spectrum. And when you see somebody who's 40, who needs a knee replacement, who's had a knee replacement, usually they had a significant injury in their teens. A lot of times it was an ACL injury. So if you look at ACL, going back to ACL for a second, 50% of those patients end up with some degree of arthritis, pretty crappy statistics. And one study recently showed 75% of them um, go on to arthritis. And so if you look at those patients down the road, it, it, it can be a path towards a knee replacement. It could have been that they had a fracture, that they broke a bone right around the knee and that that led to arthritis. Um, but most people who get arthritis over time, it's just a genetic predisposition to arthritis. It's, it's the getting old arthritis. And sometimes getting old is my age at 52. And so, um, <laughs> 
that's really unfortunate if you have arthritis at, in your 40s or 50s. But um, I mean, arthroplasty has been around for a long time when you do a knee replacement. It's a good operation, but it's not a good operation for sports. Um, most people can't run with a knee replacement. Maybe you can run out of the way of a bus, but not, not, uh, not go jogging. I, I usually, when I've worked with patients with knee replacements in the past, I usually find that those that have a partial knee replacement get right back to running in a matter of a couple months if they want to. But the total is a very long, painful rehab process because you probably just cut through eight, 10 inches of the anterior knee structures. It's much it's a much bigger deal surgery. And it also doesn't really feel like your knee. So even if you've fully recovered, um, I, I think most patients feel much better and they have a lot less pain, but it doesn't feel like if you were to jump on it, it wouldn't feel like it was your native knee. Right. Partials, it's at least two thirds your native knee and you're more likely to be able to, to do more things with it. It feels more natural. So if you can get away with a partial, absolutely, it's better. But yeah, definitely. Have that. Definitely. And there's a lot of different like prosthesis options now, I believe for the replacement too. I've seen some that even spare all the different ligaments of the knee if they're intact to begin with, I think. But we don't know. We actually, even when I was a med student, so I finished in 96, we were doing cruciate retaining. Now there's where we kept the PCL. So some people are still doing that. Some people are not. It It's all over the place. We don't know what's better. We still don't know. I mean, I, you, we can, you can show a study that one's better than the other and vice versa. So um, the newest technology sort of um, for knee replacements is the uncemented, where you just, you rely on the patient's bone to actually grow into an implant. And that's what we did for hip replacements, which I don't do, but for years and shoulder replacements for at least 10 years. And for knee replacements, it's only over the past few years that we've been doing uncemented total knees. And theoretically that's better. Uh, there's a new partial that's uncemented, but it's not widely distributed yet. So we don't know yet, but, um, that's sort of the direction we're going in, at least getting your body to grow into it. I tell people it's like having an implant in your, in your teeth, instead of just cementing on a, a crown, they actually rely on a person's own body to heal it. I think it's better. Yeah. That sounds promising. Anyways, it seems more natural than, you know, we're going to put this metal implant in there and, you know, we're going to cement it on and hope for the best. Um, that's another process, as we were mentioning, as I mentioned before, I, when I see knee replacements, everyone is always in so much pain the first week or two. And I think people forget that, you know, while it might feel better to have a knee that's all cleared up and no longer full of, you know, arthritic stuff and all kinds of, for lack of a better way to put it, joint mice, uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a little bit of pain you're going to have to overcome to get to that higher ground later on in life. The first two weeks, I think, are misery. It's <laughs> rare that you meet somebody who, say, who says it wasn't terrible. The first couple of weeks are rough. And there's so many other factors that you have to consider with the knee replacement, in addition to pretty much any knee or lower extremity surgery, right? So you want to make sure you're moving around as much as you can to help prevent blood clots and that sort of thing from coming about. And I know the last thing anyone wants to do after they just had their knee ripped open is get up and move around or get up and move their ankle. But for patients out there, it's essential. And for clinicians and providers out there, make sure you drive home that point because I'm just thinking back to some of the uh, patients I saw last year at this time. And I literally saw a 20 year old girl who was sent to the emergency room for blood clot development in her leg. 
And in this specific case, her surgeon recommended four weeks of bed rest following her procedure, which again, you know, I don't know all the specifics that went on between her surgeon and her. That's not my place to get involved or say anything, but it is essential to get up and move around because this is a nasty issue and it's out there. So there is nobody, there's no patient ever that I would say bed rest, um, <laughs> at least for what I do. I mean, I tell people the next day I want them, I mean, with very few exceptions, I want them sitting like a normal person, meaning in a chair with their knee bent to 90 degrees for some rare patellar tendon injuries. We slow that bending down a little bit, but for the most part, we want patients bending their knee immediately and getting up and about, even if it's a surgery, we're not letting them put weight on. We still want them up and about not lying in bed all day because it's not just the blood clot, it's stiffness, it's general deconditioning, it's we lose a lot of muscle mass with a week of bed rest. And we continue to see in the research and the literature that any type of arthritic, arthritis related condition pretty much responds well to strengthening and just exercise and movement in general. So if it's going to help, yeah, it might not be pleasant in the time, but do something your future self will thank you for. As I've been, as we've been talking about arthritis, it came to mind to me that a lot of people also seek out injections to try and delay any kind of replacement or surgical intervention and that sort of thing. I'm not sure if you do many injections yourself, but do you have any thoughts or general advice for people on injections and that sort of thing with the surgical intervention? We do a lot of injections in our office. I myself, I mean, I don't do most of them. My PA does most of them, but we typically start if somebody comes in and their knees really swollen from arthritis. Um, the first step is usually cortisone just to quiet things down. It's kind of like putting liquid Advil into your knee, meaning it's not liquid Advil, it's an anti-inflammatory, which um, quiets the knee down. And at the same time as we putting, at the same time that we put that injection in um, through the same needle, we take out whatever swelling's there. So at least there's some period of time where the knee is less swollen the inflammation can go down. Usually that allows you to do a little bit more in physical therapy or a little, get your knee moving. Then the next step is typically hyaluronic acid. Most insurance covers hyaluronic acid. I don't, there's different formulations. There's a one-shot version and a three-shot version. I don't think the one-shot works nearly as well as the three-shot. So most patients do the three-shot, which is basically one a week for three weeks. And it's like putting hand lotion on dry skin. It's just a lubricant and it doesn't work for everybody. It works in about 60, 65% of patients. But again, it's, there's not a big downside to it. So I think it's worth a try. After that, we typically go to platelet-rich plasma. Data says it also works in about two thirds of patients, but insurance doesn't cover it and it's expensive. So usually that's our third, third round. And then there's stem cells. And the problem with stem cells is that the main one we use got taken off the market last year by the FDA. It was a placental stem cell and it was easy, just as easy as getting a gel injection, but we just took it out of a freezer instead of off the shelf. Um, but again, insurance didn't cover it. And then the FDA pulled um, those products last year. So then we're left with more complicated stem cells. Like either we have to take it from your iliac crest, which is a big needle in your pelvis. So we typically only do that in the OR or taking fat, which sounds great. Like you get thinner, you have liposuction and then you shake it down, except you don't actually get thinner because you just take a little bit of fat. And again, there's very limited data on that. And it's kind of a production of a procedure. So while I've done that, a few of those, I just don't have the time in clinic um, to make that my standard practice. We do have a few clinical trials ongoing. So on, patients can look on clinicaltrials.gov, but there are clinical trials that are ongoing to see how effective these different procedures are. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up because I know some people who spent about $6,000 at one point on stem cell injections to hopefully delay the knee arthritis. And to me, before I even suggest or even bring that idea up to someone, I want a little bit of data or something to support that it works before someone just goes and drops six grand on it. Yeah, exactly. There is some data for some of the products, but um, it, it's not, it's not going to cure the arthritis. It might just make you feel better. Gotcha. And some of that might be up here. I'm okay. willing to bet anyways. You mentioned a little bit ago too, that, you know, patellar issues are another thing we see in the knee. So to me, that comes up with patellar tracking or patellar subluxations and dislocations. And I've seen a number of them myself from patellar dislocations and a MPFL surgery follows or just patellar tracking and lateral releases go up, usually followed that. And I've even seen a quad tendon repair, which boy, that was an experience. So when it comes to that whole kneecap area, because I feel like a lot of people don't have a good handle on that or don't fully understand the movements and just the overall role of it. What are you looking at from a surgical perspective with things like instability or dislocation and tracking type issues? So I would put it in two different categories, sort of as, as you have. So there's instability where, so the patella is a pulley. So you pull with your quad onto your patella, that pulls your patellar tendon, then that attaches to your shin bone. So that's how you straighten your leg. And if the way the patella sits in the, in the groove on the front of the thigh bone, Sometimes it's um, tracking just fine. And sometimes a patient has had some sort of event and the patella has dislocated. And then those patients, depending on their anatomy are somewhat likely to do it again. And so most of the time when I see a patellar dislocation, it's usually not their first, by the time they get to me, it's usually not the first episode. It's usually happened a number of times. And um, besides the fact that it's traumatic to have your kneecap slip out of place, and then that can put you, on the road to arthritis. And so um, for instability, we certainly don't let it happen twice. In certain patients, if they have the factors, we only let it happen once. And the treatment for that is at least an MPFL reconstruction. I say at least because depending on how their alignment is, they may also need an osteotomy to realign their, their, their knee, essentially to realign how their patella tracks. So it's always an MPFL, maybe an osteotomy. As far as tracking, that's more like pain. So if I see a patient, like I saw a patient today who's 32 and she said her knee has hurt her since she was 12. She had her first surgery when she was 15. And here we are, she's had maltracking. Now she's developed a cartilage defect, which is a nice way of saying arthritis. And what do we do at this point? Because at this point she can't walk up and down the stairs. She can't sit at her desk for a long time without getting up and moving her knee because her knee is painful just to sit. And now we're looking at a much more complicated operation because not only do I have to fix the tracking by doing an osteotomy, but she's going to need a cartilage transplant for the arthritis that's developed because of the maltracking. She's a lot younger than most people would think for multiple knee surgeries, right? I mean, exactly. It's, it's one of those sort of neglected, I would say neglected populations. So a lot of these patients have just been told, oh, it's just patellofemoral syndrome. Oh, it's just maltracking. Like, oh, just go do more PT. And 
at a certain point they give up. They're like, I've, I've tried PT. I've gone to PT for a year of my life when you add it up and um, I'm not any better. And so they just give up. And um, I've had patients move to a house without stairs. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing what people have put up with because a lot of, a lot of doctors have told them that there's just nothing they could do. That, um, that's definitely not true. And as far as lateral release, Lateral release is pretty rare for me as an isolated procedure. Like most patients who are tracking laterally, like the kneecap is not centered in the groove. Most of those patients need something more significant. Like they might need a lateral release with an osteotomy, or they might need a cartilage transplant um, with some soft tissue work. But typically it's lateral release plus something because you need something more than um, just releasing tight soft tissue on the outside part of the knee. Right, right. That makes sense because there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle. As you mentioned, the kneecap has that whole tracking process, which I believe, don't quote me on this, but in full extension, you're not really going to see any contact between the femur and the patella. And then as you start to move into flexion, your stability mostly comes from the surrounding soft tissue because the patella's not the patella's not in its groove to track at this point. And then as you get to probably about 30 degrees, that's when you start to see contact between the femoral condyle and the patella. And then the patella will be seated within the trochlea. And then from there, as you continue to bend your knee or flex your knee, you're going to see the patella track through the groove in the femur. So correct, except there is a fair amount of variability. Like some people are born with their patella alta, meaning their kneecap is really high. So mm -hmm. they, number one, have to bend their knee a whole lot to look, to get the patella into the groove. And then secondly, they overload the bottom part of their patella because instead of the stress going on the whole backside of the patella, most of the stress for day-to-day -day walking and that type of thing just goes to the inferior part of the patella. So we see them wearing out their patella preferentially at the bottom part of it. And and they're much younger than, I mean, nobody should be wearing out anything, but I, unfortunately that's not the case, um, <laughs> but they tend to wear out their cartilage much earlier than others. Do you think hypermobility plays into something like a patellar issue as well? So I'm just thinking back to that hypermobility scale, uh, Byton, I think it was mm -hmm. of the nine things you look for. And I've seen a couple people who, you know, I'm moving their hip around and I can get like literally 60, 70 degrees of internal rotation and my eyes just get all big. Uh, when I see stuff like that, and then they'll stand up and they'll show like 15, 20 degrees hyperextension, which a lot more than I expect. Um, but I would imagine that would probably play a role in all of this as well. So not every um, ligamentously lax or hypermobile patient dislocates their patella or however, um, certainly plenty of the patients I see who do have patellar instability also do have hyperlaxity. So I measure the bait and scale in everybody. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's sort of part of the equation, but I don't have any you know, magic wand to tighten these pieces <laughs> up. So it doesn't particularly change my treatment, but when I see hyperextension, for example, so if you can get your knee um, kind of straighter than straight, it's going backwards, um, then that, that actually means your patella is coming even higher. So it means that if you already had a little bit of Alta, your kneecap was high and then you hyperextend, it, it essentially means you get even more more stress on the bottom part of your patella. And so that those patients can be more symptomatic than patients who are not hyperlax. They're more likely to dislocate. So I think that if I see a very lax patient who's 
dislocated once, I'm more likely to say have surgery than rehab it because they just don't have the soft tissue restraints that non-lax people do. Right, right. What's the outcomes look like after someone goes through one of these procedures for the patella? Outcomes of instability surgery. So MPFL plus or minus and osteotomy are excellent. So um, above 90% as far as having that the problem cured essentially of not dislocating again. As far as realignment for pain, um, that's a little bit more variable because it depends how much cartilage that, where there is. And so overall good. I think the satisfaction, if you look at satisfaction rates on surgery, it's very high. So whether you look at satisfaction rates from cartilage transplant on the patella or satisfaction rates on osteotomy, um, it's, it's very high in the 90s. We like to hear those kind of numbers. It scares me when, you know, I see a patient who comes in. Yeah, you know, the surgeon who just did my total ankle replacement, that was his first total ankle. And I just, you know, well, rock back in my chair and shake my head a little bit. <laughs> and it's, I think it's a good question for patients to ask their doctor. I mean, like how many of these have you done? And it's a hard question to answer when you're first starting out in practice, because, you know, you have to start somewhere. And, you know, in some places, the junior surgeons can scrub with the more senior surgeon um, to kind of help them get going. But I think it's a reasonable question. I mean, certainly if it was my knee or my daughter's knee, I wouldn't necessarily want it to be the surgeon's first or, or 20th. <laughs> like. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, I think that brings up a great point as well with any kind of procedure, even if it's just an injection, like ask questions, like don't be afraid to, you know, play 20 questions with your doctor or surgeon or whoever it is you have in front of you right now, because that's the kind of stuff it's better to know ahead of time instead of after you've already committed to it. And now there's no going back. One question patients will ask, and they're usually apologetic. If for an injection, they're like, wait, why are you injecting the outside of my knee? It hurts on the inside. That's just you know, an example. And I always say exactly what you said. I'm like, you know what? I'd much rather you ask me because I have an answer, but it's possible that I'm wrong. It's possible that I forgot where your knee hurts. I mean, for the, for the knee, it's like a balloon. I could put the needle in many different places and it would probably end up at the, the product, the cortisone, the gel, whatever would end up in the right place except there's some more reliable places to inject it that it will spread everywhere. So that's why I actually always go lateral for a knee. But, um, but I always tell patients, I'd much rather you ask me questions, especially because sometimes we might, you know, might be able to get to a better place that way. And I think it's helpful to have that kind of open dialogue and communication between the patient and whoever their healthcare provider is. Finding somebody who really is very familiar with your type of problem or your type of pathology, I think is the most important, important thing. For sure. And like you mentioned before, in your case, you really specialize in the knee. This is one of the few places you even operate on. You picked two joints. And to me, that says a lot when you have someone who's really specialized in something, as opposed to someone who's very general and they'll cut anything. Right. No, I think, I think that's, that's better. And that's certainly what I would look for. I mean, I wouldn't have my hand surgery by somebody who does hands and feet and spine, um, but that was the old way. I and mean, that's the way it was, you know, 40 years ago in orthopedics, but it's, it's been a long time that people have been specializing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now I mentioned to you before we started recording that a great individual that I worked with a couple of weeks ago made this point that every time I talk with someone, I ask them, you know, what did they have to give up in order to get to the point where they are now. You mentioned that you're very successful as a doctor, as a surgeon. 
you've been doing this for 20, 25 years. It's an incredible career you have, and you have touched the lives of hundreds, thousands of patients. And you clearly know your stuff as it comes to the knee, shoulder, and the human body. So in order to get to this point, what sacrifices did you have to make, Dr. Strickland? So, I mean, I think going back to college, you know, being, I went to Cornell and I have one daughter there and one, another one going there next year. And um, pre-med at Cornell, I would say was pretty rough. Like I, I definitely was not sleeping late. You know, I had all the eight o'clock labs and, um, and I didn't get to take a lot of, I think the maybe more interesting or varied fun classes that a lot of my friends uh, got to take. So, I mean, I had a great time in college. I made the best friends ever, but um, I definitely missed out on some aspects of, of college, but that that's fine. Med school, I loved med school. Like I actually can say that like the actual classes in med school were way more interesting than pre-med because taking organic chemistry is nothing like being a doctor, but taking pathology is just like being a doctor. So uh, I don't feel like I missed anything for my four years of med school. Like I, I really loved med school. But then after that, you have six more years. And so when all my friends were out, like really making money and um, I missed all the bachelorette parties and, you know, yes, I went to my best friend's weddings, but um, I certainly didn't go to many things because, um, you know, you're working and you're on call. I did manage to have three kids. I think they'd say I was a good mom and I was definitely, you know, there for them when they needed me, but I wasn't, um, wasn't home for every, <laughs> every minute. Um, and, you know, one of the things I, I see a lot of um, female residents and, and med students who come in and ask, like, is this possible? Can I have a family? Can I do this? Is, is, you know, different parts of your life, you do different things. So I did less research for my first few years in practice than I do now because I had little kids and, you know, I needed to see them. Now that my kids are essentially, my twins will be in college next year. Like I have a lot more free time. They're busy. Um, and you know they don't they don't need me to do a lot of things for them anymore. So I I think at different stages of your career you can focus on different things. I did 625 surgeries last year. I did not do that you know when my kids were two. You know I think you can kind of ramp things up and down and change sort of your practice. But you know yeah. So I gave up you know some of the fun things that you get to do um, when you're younger. But um, I don't regret it. I mean I I've never for a minute thought I should have done something different. That's great. Yeah. Living life with no regrets is everyone's goal, I think. And it's interesting you mentioned the points that you did because uh, earlier today I was talking with Dr. Ariane Missimer and I asked her the same question and she said a very similar thing. She was like, look, you know, I would have loved to go out with my friends more and, you know, enjoy myself on the weekends and stuff. But in order to get the certifications and degrees and the experience that I needed to get here, that unfortunately wasn't possible. But I like how you mentioned the importance of prioritizing. So if you want to have a family, if you want to do certain things, maybe even, you know, sneak a vacation in there once or twice, it's possible, but you have to allocate the time properly and you have to set your priorities straight. hundred percent. There's a great book that I read more than five years ago called Essentialism. And it's basically at every stage of your life, you have to figure out what's absolutely essential, you know, kind of keep it in mind because you can't do everything. So figure out what's essential at that time and place. And, you know, I think that, you know, everybody's, you're going to always have some regrets. It's impossible to live your life with no regrets, but if you sort of focus on what's important at the different stages, I, I do think that's the recipe for happiness. 
if you have time, I'm curious. I know that, or at least I've heard that you really enjoy skiing. Have you noticed any trends amongst skiing injuries and that sort of thing? Yeah, I really like skiing. I've done a lot less the last couple of years just because of COVID and we had some travel restrictions last year from our hospital. But um, as far, and all my kids ski raced. So even though I see a ton of ski injuries, I still um, I'm sort of pro skiing, but um, <laughs> we still haven't figured out, you know, how to create a binding that lets you out um, so you don't tear your ACL, but it doesn't, um, but it holds you in when you're sort of in the steeps and you're skiing bumps. So it's just, it's, you can't have both, I don't think. Um, and, you know, the, the, one of the worst falls I ever took, it was like my, my ski just came off and I didn't make any sense. And so then I, I fell, I was in Utah and I took my skis in and something had happened in my binding. And of course I didn't follow my own advice. And I, I hadn't got my bindings checked that year. It was like my my first time skiing that year and I don't know something happened with the adjustment and so um you know it's always my first do an interview about skiing I all the first thing I say is you know at the beginning of the season besides getting in shape for the ski season you have to really get your equipment checked and but we still don't have like great um technology that can prevent injury I, bindings I mean I completely echo your point on the importance of getting your equipment checked because I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who set their DIN settings wrong and either their ski pre-releases and now they're going down a slope with one ski right? or it doesn't release and now they're sliding down a hill on two skis when they really shouldn't have any skis on. Right, exactly. It ends it, a fine line and like that's why you don't want to say you're too advanced um, so you don't want your din setting too high if, you know, it, it's a fine line, you know, it's certainly, um, watching my kids ski race their their bindings were cranked up because if it fell off and you're going 50 or 60 miles an hour, it's, it's not pretty. And I'm sure that made you thrilled as a parent when, you know, they've got everything as tight as possible in the freezing cold. And then they get back in the lodge, they start to get some feeling back in their feet. You take the boots off and all of a sudden there's like two or three toenails missing because of how tight they were. I've, uh, I've been in those shoes myself one too many times. And I can tell you, it's not the most pleasant thing. And it really speaks volumes, I think, to the mindset and state of mind that you get in when you're competing in something like a ski race. Because as you mentioned before with the ACL, sometimes things go wrong and you don't even notice you don't even know or pay attention. So it's one of those after effect kind of things. And I think there's some new, um, I've heard of a couple different um, speed suits for racing, which I've seen some pretty crazy injuries. And one was in my daughter when she was 12, where she fell and the skis are so sharp because they sharpen their skis every day um, that I cut through her speed suit, through her skin, through her IT band, just missed her lateral collateral ligament. She ended up with a lot of a lot of sutures, but, um, but basically is a hundred percent. Um, and I I've seen that more than once. Um, just, wow. and so, you know, if you're racing and have your skis that sharp, um, hopefully we'll get some better speed suits that make it so you can't cut slice right through your leg. Yeah. That's insane. I had, I haven't seen that before, thankfully. And I hope I don't ever see that, but wow, that's scary. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, the other one was actually a patient of mine. I'd done his other ACL, um, and then I think it was a year or two later when he, he fell, they had to stop the ambulance on the way to the hospital they were trying to go to, to another hospital so he could get a few units of blood transfused due to the bleeding from his injury from a sharp ski. Wow. It was like a shark had bit him. 
I mean, I got him after the fact because he was four hours away from here. I just took the staples out of his skin, but um, it was incredible. I mean, yeah, life-threatening injury. So anyway, there's some technology that's hopefully prevent those types of injuries. Yeah, for sure. Wow, that sounds like Something a real freak thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, geez. If that was on the East Coast, then all the more reason to go back out to Vail or Breckenridge or Alta or one of those, I guess, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Strickland, this has been an amazing uh, podcast episode. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks that you want to share with people listening? No, I think um, I think we covered a tremendous amount of material. I think um, uh, when patients tell me things like, oh, I assume my knee hurts because I'm just getting old or, you know, I think you always just want to get the right diagnosis. And then I think all the su- support is, is really helpful. But if you don't know what the problem is to begin with, it's really hard to treat things appropriately, whether it's as a physical therapist or as a, a surgeon. Um, so I think, you know, don't assume it's just, it's just getting old or that, you know, your knee pain just is never going to go away. If, for example, the young patients with patellofemoral pain, um, there's probably something that can be done. Yeah. And I've seen, I, I like to tell people I've seen 40 year olds in nursing homes I've seen 80-year-olds running marathons. Exactly. So age really is but a number. It's about what you do as you're aging. And you know, if you seek out the right people and when something goes wrong, you get to the root cause of it and address it quickly and comprehensively, anything is possible afterwards. For people yeah. who want to find out more about you, where can they find, uh, find you on ResearchGate or LinkedIn or anything of that sort? I mean, most people just go to my website, which is Sabrina Strickland, uh, Sabrina, <laughs> Dr. Strickland, I'm sorry, I can't even speak. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm giving my email, but that's not, not the right way. Um, <laughs> but it's just Dr. Strickland, but um, also through HSS. I mean, there's um, links to everything that, that I've ever published and, um, and a link to our office email. So if there's a question, I have patients emailing questions all the time. And my athletic trainer takes a, uh, a look at it. And if it's something she knows the answer to, she'll, she'll answer it, but forward it on or, and we do a lot of telehealth. So we have a lot of patients who don't live anywhere near here that come see us. But a lot of times we preview them on zoom to see if, you know, there is something that we can help them with. Awesome. That's a great option to have. Dr. Strickland, really appreciate your time. It's been awesome talking with you today. Absolutely. Have a great night. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.